Hello and welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Shireen Hamza and today I'll be talking to Professor Greg Thomas, who teaches Black Studies via the English Department at Tufts University. We're recording from his office today here on campus. Currently, he's completing a book on the writings of George Jackson, who we'll talk about more today on the episode, and he's continuing to curate the traveling exhibition, George Jackson and the Son of Palestine, which opened in October 2015 for the Abu Jihad Museum for Political Prisoner Affairs on the Abu Dis campus of Al-Quds University. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Thomas. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I think we should start out the episode by maybe hearing a little bit about who George Jackson is. I actually always tell people that if I tried to introduce someone to George Jackson in 1970 or 1971, then I would look like a lunatic, right? Because in the early 70s, everybody, maybe on planet Earth, especially if they read in a number of languages, in fact, would have known who George Jackson was and would have probably been captivated. So today we can reintroduce some of us uh, to George Jackson. And I also tend to say that if you have a hero you know, in North America from the 1960s and 70s, those movements in particular, then chances are your hero's hero could have been George Jackson. Wow. Because right? uh, Huey P. Newton, the founder of the Black Panther Party in North America, would say George Jackson was his hero. Wow. We once wrote the political prisoner today, Mumia Abu-Jamal, when I was teaching a course called Black Prison Writing USA. We wrote Mumia uh, when we were reading his latest book at the time, and we sent him a series of questions, and he wrote us back. You know, he wrote us back collectively and responded to those questions, and then he wrote all the students back individually because he's an amazing soul. And one of those questions was, you know, what would you have to say about George Jackson? And he summed it up pretty clearly. He said he was the baddest of them all. So George Jackson uh, was sent to prison for the last time around the age of 18 in the late 1950s and never got out of prison again. Uh, but he politicized himself, right? Uh, he practiced what the Palestinians, for example, would call like political self-education. And in no time, he turned himself into a revolutionary. And, uh, and that meant that the prison wardens the prison guards, the keepers would never let him out again. And he was sent to prison for the same things that black folk are sent to prison for today, right? In drugs. He was sent to prison on the charge of a $70 gas station robbery. And they gave him a sentence of one year to life for this, right? We could go into the details, but they really don't matter. And uh, he was given a sentence one year to life. And for the next 11 and a half years, he remained in prison until he was executed by the state. The state uh, came up with an alibi because they didn't send him to the gas chamber. Instead, they assassinated him in prison. And uh, that was 11 and a half years later. But by then, he had not only become a revolutionary, but he had become a world-renowned revolutionary. Uh, he had authored uh, a second book, which he smuggled out of prison right before the assassination, which was called Blood in My Eye. He had already been made famous uh, for a first book of prison writings called So Dead Brother, mm -hmm. The Prison Letters of George Jackson. Go on to be translated into 20 or so language, hailed by other icons like C.L.R. James and Jean Genet uh, and what have you as like incredible world historical documents and whatnot. Um, Walter Rodney as well from Tanzania mm. would write about the significance of George Jackson and the model. By then, George Jackson had also been uh, become a part of the Black Panther Party himself 
have been designated by Huey P. Newton to be the field marshal of the Black Panther Party. And he really became the model and the ideal for prisoners and political prisoners here in the United States and wherever they could read him. And I'm still discovering various different people, various different movements throughout the world, throughout planet Earth that were in contact with the spirit and the ideal of George Jackson. Mm. Earlier today, you told me that George Jackson has taken you several places that you never would have gone otherwise. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the backstory for how you came to travel to Palestine with George Jackson. Yes. Legacy. Yes. So when I, many years ago, when I was an undergraduate um, and when I was a graduate student too, I was so dissatisfied with what passes for education, right, in the conventional school system. Again, whether it's like studying for a, a BA or bachelor's degree or studying for a master's or a PhD. And so I was doing, even if I was alone, I was doing what the people, the ancestors, the movements before me would do, which is to study outside, right? To study outside of the classroom structure, to study outside of the institutional curriculum. And, uh, and I started reading on my own. So by this time, I was actually going to the University of Berkeley, which is where, uh, University of California at Berkeley, which is where I finished my PhD. And again, I continued to be unhappy with what we had access to, and I continued to search. And the only thing I liked about Berkeley <laughs> was that they had used bookstores everywhere right that's the only thing i like about harvard square yeah see wherever we go and so they had a few new bookstores that were interesting but i still thought that when you walk into these stores they're mostly just crimes against trees and uh you had used bookstores all over the place and the used bookstores had a very different database in terms of what's available on the shelf right so the used bookstores by virtue of their chronological placement in history they had the archive that i wanted Right, which was the archive of knowledge produced in the 60s and the 70s, either by the social movements and their praxis, right, themselves, or even more conventional scholarship that was moved and pushed by those movements and their praxis, right? Uh, and so at one point when I was there trying to finish up, you know, my first project there at Berkeley, I started to go back to George Jackson and to read him because of the dissatisfaction and the isolation. And it almost locked me in a room with him, you know? Uh, and it's just a radical understatement to say that I was touched by this and moved by this, you know, uh, possessed like by it even. And in that moment, I talk about this moment because in that particular moment, I knew even way back then that we would work together. <laughs> <laughs> at some point in the future, that I would do work because of this and via this, right? That there would be a project, you know? And a project that would also be too big and too precious for academia itself. So I didn't know what it would be at the time, but I knew I was coming back. When I finished uh, my second single author book project, you know, having also done a lot of editorial work because I was committed and remain committed to collective work, I turned back you know, to George Jackson for the next project. And I decided that now and then I would basically work on a book project uh, that would write on his writings. Mm -hmm. Because today, especially, we have a problem of iconography, mm -hmm. right? Iconography is important, right? I don't think that there's human consciousness, right? Or uh, our social political movement work without it. Right. But when under capitalism, right, iconography is all we have and imagery is flattened. OK. And it's uh, iconography with illiteracy. Right. And without true feeling, I would say uh, we have a problem. Right. So I didn't want to approach George Jackson simply as an icon. 
you know, in the same way that Target would put Che on a T-shirt, right? Uh, and that people would walk around with Che T-shirts without knowing who Che is, really, right? Without studying Che, et cetera. And so I wanted to do, I wanted to write in his writing, do a book project on the writings and not just the figure, for example, right? Uh, at the same time, I wanted to learn everything I could learn. I didn't want to be an English professor and just turn the page and pontificate on the page with my own page. So I decided I was going to do as much research as I could, right, that normally like a lit professor wouldn't necessarily do to write right, a book right, right, right. on some other writings, okay? Mm -hmm. So I started doing interviews, right, with as many of his comrades I could access. And I started like looking for material and looking for documents. And this is when I began to return to California in the Bay Area, Northern California, to do some of these things. And, uh, and that's when I started this project that's had a couple of working names. <laughs> I think the most recent working name is to call it uh, The Immortal George L. Jackson. Before, I think my first uh, working title was The Brain and the Brilliance of George L. Jackson, which quotes an essay on George by Elaine Brown, a former chairman of the Black Panther Party. And uh, so I started to do that research and to go back and do some more and then some more, right? And I was visiting a law office of, uh, of a lawyer uh, who worked on some of these grand political trials of the 60s and 70s, and he gave me access to some of his papers. So these would have been documents used in any of the trials, any number of the trials, like for example. And, uh, and I came across a document that would really start right, my relationship with Palestine. Uh, because George Jackson was assassinated in his body, at least, on August 21st, 1971, right? So that day, the state clearly had planned a massacre. They wanted to massacre a special part of San Quentin Prison, mm -hmm. the part that's called the Adjustment Center, right? Mm -hmm. So this is like a triple maximum security prison within the prison. But those prisons fought back and actually took control of that part of the prison for a half an hour. And the state was so outraged that their violence was met with a counter-violence, like a resistance, that they undertook some study of their own. And so they sent, uh, it seems they sent prison guards and other ag agents of the state into each of the cells, about 20 of those cells there, uh, to, to scavenge them, to study them, and to take note of what lay in those cells, right? And so they made digests for each of those cells. And for most of the prison cells, that document wasn't especially interesting. They were short list of minutia, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. But when you got to George Jackson's cell, <laughs> it was a long list, mm -hmm. right? It was several pages, in fact, right? Wow. And what it amounted to most was a bibliography, right? So it was actually a digest that detailed more than 99 books found in his prison cell on uh, the day of his assassination. Wow. And yeah. this is an archive that you really couldn't have accessed in a traditional archive. Absolutely. There was a political organization in the Bay Area, Northern California, that I had somewhat of a relationship with in terms of, like, they put on public forum. Uh, they supported some ex-political prisoners that I was interviewing and what have you. And uh, one year on the anniversary of the assassination, they asked if they could make it public, if they could post it on their website. And that's how it was also made the recovery. I would never say I'm not Columbus. I didn't discover anything, right? I'm not lying and saying I'm discovering something like Columbus. <laughs> so the recovery of that document, which the state would like to keep hidden, right, was made even more public when it was posted there. And so, no, there would have been no academic institution anywhere 
right, that would have been able to even recognize the existence of a document, let alone, you know, teach us about it. And so it was 99 books listed in the first three pages. And then I found that there were more books listed in additional pages that would be appended later. Uh, and this is a prison cell that's only eight by six feet. And this didn't uh, reflect all of his books either. Many would be out alone uh, to other prisoners. And, uh, and so one of the items on that list, it just said Enemy of the Sun. And then it had the family names, the surnames of the editors of that collection. So I couldn't tell what it was exactly. Like later on, I would realize that the subtitle was Poetry of Palestinian Resistance. You know, and now if we fast forward, uh, I know Mr. Nar uh, Mr. Aruri, right, is a huge like figure who passed away like several years ago. Uh, and now I've had lunch with Edmund Marib, right, the two editors. But at the time, I just saw the surnames, the main title without the subtitle, but it rang a bell, you know, and uh, I just went online I didn't do this for all of the other books, right? But I went online and I ordered it. And I had a colleague, you know, who studied uh, Arab American literature, for example, uh, where I was teaching at the same time. And I asked a few other people. And uh, and in the U.S., this literature should be known, but it's actually not, even by some specialist, right? Some right. contemporary specialist, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but George Jackson knew mm -hmm. this literature. And so the book comes, and I see what it was. You know, I see the Arabic on the cover. I see that Enemy of the Sun is poetry, that it's poetry of Palestinian resistance. The title poem, right, is actually sprawling across the cover in Arabic, right? And then it rang the bell further because I understood that in the past I had fingered through the Black Panther Party newspaper mm -hmm. and I had seen a poem attributed to George Jackson in the newspaper, right, almost as a pull-out poster, in fact, right, and that that was titled Enemy of the Sun. So this was the beginning of my realization, right, that this poem had now been attributed to two authors, right, who actually had extraordinary connections. And that this was a classic Palestinian poem, right? Mm -hmm. A classic Palestinian poem like here, you know, Langston Hughes' work would be classic black work in North America. Right. And that because it had been shared and because there were connections between the experiences and the voices mm -hmm. of these peoples, like one could be taken for the other. And I've stopped saying mistaken, right, mm -hmm. for another, right? And we could talk about that mm -hmm. further. Uh, that one could be taken for another. So this was actually a poem uh, originally authored by Simeon Qasim, right, from the Galilee. And, um, and that it went on to have like a long black life in North America for at least four decades, right? Via, on the one hand, the Black Panther Party, right? But also, on the other hand, Drummond's Beer Press, because that collection had been published by a black anti-imperialist press which is legendary, right, that had uh, opened in Washington, D.C., and existed for but a few years, I think maybe six years, but made like a huge impact. And they had published this anthology, wow. as it turns out. And what I would find out later is that uh, Rarib and Aruri had great difficulty getting this Palestinian poetry in print and translation in North America, that they were rejected by about 11 presses before Drum and Spear, right, said, yes, we'll do this, right? Um, and I'm continuing to learn more about that publication. So thanks to Drum and Sphere and the Black Panther Party, right, we would be able to give thanks to George Jackson as a teacher of this Palestinian poetry, mm -hmm. as a distributor of this poetry. Comrades in prison, comrades in his 
uh, political party, comrades in the struggle at large, right? And then the poem would just continue to multiply. It would be printed in other newspapers uh, of, uh, related to the origins of the Black Panther Party, for example, in the East Coast, right? And then people might think that the author uh, was the next person, right, who handed it to them when they were trying to recruit them into the movement and what have you, right? right. Like George Jackson being a very pivotal figure here. Um, for this connection. So I just happened to come across that material not long before I made my first trip to Palestine mm -hmm. as a part of an academic solidarity delegation mm -hmm. that would visit uh, five Palestinian universities in the West Bank when we went for about two weeks in May of 2014, I believe, right? So when we get back two weeks later, the Israelis are bombing Gaza, mm -hmm. right? And we were in the West Bank, not in Gaza. It would have been great to go to Gaza, but we weren't able to. That wasn't part of the itinerary. But everywhere we had been in the West Bank was being raided, mm -hmm. right, to go along with the bombing, like of Gaza. So that uh, itinerary was very powerful, right? So we go to Birzeit University, Bethlehem University, Al-Quds University, uh, and Ajan National University in Nablus, right? And uh, in Hebron you know, University, right? Um, and uh, we're, we're based in Jerusalem, right? And then went out and uh, went on to try to make these connections. And everywhere I went, I was now armed with this story about this amazing connection. <laughs> People would just be very impressed by the story of George Jackson and his younger brother, Jonathan Jackson, who was martyred trying to liberate him from prison a year before George Jackson was martyred. You know, and I always remember the reactions of Palestinians in Palestine when I told them that story, right? Uh, as if it was a love story, right? Mm -hmm. Their reactions turned it into a love story. Mm -hmm. And I told them about this poetry connection. Mm -hmm. um, and the response was always amazed and amazing, right? And then um, on the last day of our itinerary that year, uh, we visited the Abu Jihad Center, right? <laughs> we go to this National Prisoner Movement Museum. And I was so overwhelmed by the idea, by the thought of it, right? And by the space, which is beautiful and majestic, right? And the staff was amazing uh, as well. And when I told the story there, I got the general reaction that I got from Palestinians in Palestine. But then also someone said, oh, we should do an exhibition. I lit up, and for the next year, I thought, oh, well, this is a fantasy that could be made real. And for the next year, I thought primarily of nothing else but to try to find a way to make this happen. Right. And so. I went to Palestine and then continued to go back to Palestine for a time and to remain connected to Palestine on the wings of George Jackson. Are you happy? See, Palestinian bleeding tears every day. So to return to the exhibition itself, um, maybe we could talk a little bit about, you know, what is in it mm -hmm. and um, 
maybe also what came of it. Yes. The Abushi Hot Center, which I think originally was, you know, called a museum, but now it's a center that hosts a museum, right? That uh, has great museum space. It has, I think, about three levels of public space, maybe a fourth floor of offices. They do archival work for the National Prisoner Movement there uh, and what have you. And again, it's a beautiful space. Uh, it's on the campus of Al-Quds University. It was designed by Al-Quds University architects. Uh, I believe it opened in 2007 after existing like in a small apartment in Ramallah. Uh, the director is uh, Dr. Fayed Abu Al-Hajj, a former pris prisoner himself. Um, and I work with my colleague, Mohammed Jamus, right, to put on uh, the exhibition. So in October 2015, I go back for three weeks in order to mount and launch the exhibition, right? So we're doing all kinds of planning beforehand. Of course, I can't take any of the material I'm going to use with me, you know, through any of the, you know, travel checkpoints. Certainly not the airport, right, controlled, right, by the Zionist state. Uh, so as it turns out, like one of the best purchases in the world is in Ramallah, as it turns out, and then we get to work on it. So uh, and it's interesting because I go back in October 2015. So we have a new season of resistance. Yeah. So this is the time that some people might even call the Intifada of the knife and therefore the backlash like against it. So the first 10 days after my arrival, when we're trying to make the exhibition happen, there's the chaos of the Zionist backlash. Right. And so every other day I can't get to the campus of Al-Quds University where the Abu Jihad Center is. I can't get there to work on the project or I might not even be able to reach my colleague on the phone. Right. Or if I can, maybe it's only after five o'clock when the soldiers are finished messing with our lives. Right. But it happened and we opened on October 20th, you know, 2015. For those first 10 days, I had no idea if this would work, actually. Right. But we did make it work despite all of like the obstacles. And uh, and so, yeah, there we have it. Now, the, the museum and the center in general is telling the ongoing story. Right. Uh, the captives of colonization and military occupation. Uh, in Palestine, across Palestine, historic Palestine, okay? Uh, and so this room, right, would tell the story of this connection, right, that is being newly recovered uh, in the context of the rest of the museum and the rest of the history. So in this particular room, we don't have to start telling the story of the Palestinian captives movement from scratch, right, because the entire structure, like, is doing that. So this room, this exhibition, right, is talking about the connection. So on the one hand, it introduces, right, as we began this conversation, it introduces or reintroduces, right, George Jackson to Palestine, mm -hmm. which was a fun thing to do, right? It was probably the best and most joyful context in which I've had to answer the question, who is George Jackson? Because if you put, you know, George Jackson's words, right, or any of the imagery that international artists made in honor of him, if you put it on the walls of Palestine, right, Almost all of it <laughs> can be taken from Palestinian. Yeah. And almost all of it evokes a profound like, Palestinian response, as we would see, right, in the conversations. And so, uh, you know, the, the first wall is reintroducing him, right? And the second wall is talking about the repression and the assassination. And then the third wall is bro uh, broaching the theme of immortality, mm -hmm. you know? And then the fourth wall is uh, talking about uh, contemporary uh, solidarity actions, mm -hmm. you know, today, 
you know, and then we have these great posters that I'd never seen. You have these sort of roll up stand up posters, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that are as tall as me, that are six you know, to seven feet tall. And, uh, and so we also had positioned around the four walls of the exhibition, uh, six of these posters, right? Mm -hmm. So we took the, uh, the book cover of Enemy of the Sun and transformed that like into a standalone poster. And the book cover of Enemy of the Sun has this amazing artwork, right? That comes from the Palestinian movement, but that was also uh, creatively uh, 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 typeset by Drum and Spear Press, mm -hmm. right? The woman who was the artistic designer for Drum and Spear Press is actually the woman who created the dominant image of the panther that we see in North America that first began in the South. Like yeah. I'm just actually finding this out. Yeah. That first began in the South, right, mm -hmm. in Alabama, mm -hmm. and then was taken up by uh, the Black Panther Party founded in Oakland, and then across historic Palestine, because we have the same panther, right, appear both in Arabic and in Hebrew, right, mm -hmm. uh, from the the, uh, the 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 Moroccans and Arab Jews, Black Jews, quote unquote, mm -hmm. uh, from Arab lands, mm -hmm. right. Uh, who rose up in the, the ghettos of Jerusalem, for example, from Mizrara in the rest of, uh, of 48 Palestine mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. to create a, a, a Black Panther group. And then also uh, around the time of the first Intifada, we get the Fahed al Aswad, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and they all, when they go to this Panther name, right, for their formations, you know, still use this Panther image, right? This is something that I'm newly finding out, right? And so, the uh, the person who sketched that before German Spear Press existed, right? She had designed, you know, the the Enemy of the Sun book and its layout, and so we used a lot of those designs that she had taken from the Palestinian movement too. Um, and so there's the book cover, for example, and then the book cover has uh, a, an avatar, right, of a sun and a collective of people like holding up the sun. It's a sketch, right, because there are sketches throughout the book of poetry which has about 11 to 12 poets mm -hmm. who had never been in the same collection before, and certainly not in English, right? Uh, and Samuel Qasim is one, along with Mahmoud Darwish and others, right? And so we took this avatar of the sun and we blew it up and made two other posters. We blew it up, gigantic, and then we put about 10, five to 10 quotes from George Jackson about the sun from his writings, right? Very, very, very poetic and powerful. And we placed them inside like the sun and transformed this into two posters, one in Arabic and one in English. Uh, for example, uh, there is also like a great sketch done by Leroy Clark um, for the Attica Rebellion in the US, for example, mm -hmm. that includes other figures like behind barbed wire, right, throwing their fist up, right, right under the sun, mm -hmm. you know, at the same time. And then uh, also standing, right, as one of six or so posters throughout the exhibition is a, a nice mashup of two uh, photographs made one that picture George Jackson and Samuel Qasim side by side, which is a fantastic image, a fantastic image. And we were able to do that because right before we opened the exhibition, um, we were able to be put in contact with the family of Samuel Qasim and they gave up some pictures. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I remember I was like sitting at Snowbar at Ramallah and this guy called the family for me before we'd ever made any kind of contact and explained what was going on and what we needed. And, uh, and his son said, I have just the picture. And there are amazing similarities between the photos when you see this. We don't have a ton of images of prisoners, right? Uh, and prisoners right, who spend their entire adult lives in captivity. And, uh, and so whenever I came across images of George, right, these would be very important moments, right? And so thanks to Karen Wald, right, uh, who has done a lot 
of work, not only as an independent journalist and not only in relationship to to George Jackson and the movements that were represented there, but also in relationship to Cuba and the Cuban Revolution. Uh, she gave me an image. One day she, I was interviewing her and she just handed a flash drive to me and it had some precious things on it, including this image, right? An image that people hadn't seen of George, right? Uh, and this was the image that connected with the image that, you know, Samuel Kassam's family gave us, especially his son, Watan Okasim. In this image, they're both standing in thresholds and doorways. Uh, and they're both very young. They're both like late 20s, maybe, you know, early 30s in the case of Samuel Kassam. But they're both late 20s. They're both like smoking a cigarette. They're both like adopting this real tough sort of buffalo stance. They're both black and white images. Uh, and here we are. We see this nice juxtaposition of these two communist men of letters, right, who are internationalists to the core. And so we were very honored when one of Samuel Kassam's son, uh, who would actually later take me to meet uh, his family in Rama, came to the opening on October 20th, 2015, drove from Haifa. Again, also, as we were trying to do with the exhibition, define the fragmentation, right, of, of the colonial occupation, uh, he came uh, and, uh, and joined us, you know, and I, I took a picture of him looking at one of a small audio visual installation, right? That includes, uh, it's about three minutes and half of it is a black screen that features audio of Simeon Kassam reading another poem, right? Where he says that from my small, from the window of my small jail cell, right? I can see your larger prison, yeah? Uh, and then the second half of the video is rare, um, uncredited color footage of, of an interview with George Jackson talking a lot about guerrilla warfare. And I learned from him uh, because one of the images that we feature is the reproduction of the Enemy of the Sun poem from the Black Panther Party newspaper that sets it with an image of George and says Enemy of the Sun by George Jackson, right? So now I say yeah, the poem has two authors. And neither of the men, Samuel Kassam, nor George Jackson was a capitalist believed in copyright or believed in property in this sense, right? And believed in and represented, you know, that new humanism that Fanon talks about. Uh, and so, you know, it's very important to see how this poem could circulate as a poem of belonging, right? Like across individual names and individual sites and why his political party or his mother or the biggest George Jackson enthusiast in the world could look at that poem and go, yep, that's my man. You know, like I hear him and not only do I hear him, or do we hear him, we hear him talking about us, our condition, our history, like et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's how powerful it is. And like later on, I would go on to, to, to interview ex-prisoners, some of whom are prisoners of new, right, in Palestine. And when this issue came up, they understood more than anybody like how this happened. And they would say things like, oh yes, you know, the poem is yours. It belongs to you. It belongs to all of us, like et cetera. So, um, so this was uh, very nice to... To, to discover as well. Uh, after George Jackson and the Son of Palestine was exhibited in Abu Dis, well, you mentioned briefly that it was also exhibited in Vienna and it was exhibited in elsewhere in the world. So maybe you could tell us a little more about its lives as it traveled. Sure. I mean, it had a difficult birth, right? Because of the occupation, um, a difficult but determined one, right? Uh, and the fall of 2015, so I was there for three weeks to open and we wanted to create all kinds of events, right, um, throughout the West Bank and Jerusalem um, to support it, to make people aware of it and what it represented. Uh, and we continue to fight the occupation to do so. So the next day after the opening, we were supposed to go to Brzee uh, University 
uh, to give a talk. Okay. Uh, but slowly that next morning, we clarified the source of our frustration as we were unable to leave. We couldn't get this rent a car. As it turns out, the Israelis had closed all the checkpoints in the West Bank that day, which just represented chaos. And so we, we had to reschedule. We went, we met with faculty uh, and at Brzeit, some incredible colleagues, right? We gave a talk at Anajan National University. We gave a talk at the Educational Bookshop in Jerusalem, uh, even though there were scare tactics, you know, like afloat, you know, saying people shouldn't go out at night, it's unsafe and what have you, uh, as if the resistance was making people unsafe and not the backlash, right? Uh, but we were still able to do that. And we tried to arrange something at Bethlehem, um, but the universities at Bethlehem and Hebron in particular had probably only met classes twice at that point by the end of October because of the political situation. Mm -hmm. And um, and so we did things like that, right? So the, a week later, we actually reprinted all of the artwork and uh, had a pop-up exhibition event at Berset University. So we couldn't get there the next day as scheduled, so we went back stronger <laughs> like a week later uh, and had a pop-up exhibition with students who were having their own uh, exhibition as well, as it turns out, for um, the resistance against the backlash, yeah. Uh, and uh, and they were commemorating like their own young martyrs, right, from that resistance at the same time. So that was very, very special. Um, and, then, uh, and then three weeks later, I was gone, I was back, but then, you know, we wanted the exhibition to be reincarnated abroad, as well as across uh, Palestine. And so we did a number of things. I think the very first reincarnation was in Oakland, California. And we also have exhibited at Hashima Theater in Haifa. Those are some of my favorite people. That's an amazing theater. Uh, and all of this was an honor for me because I had read about, you know, what Hashima Theater represented and what those young Palestinians, right, inside 48 were doing after university and uh, this collective you know, and I've seen now like some of their productions, which are just fantastic. And so for season one of, I think, uh, the 2016 season that went into 2017, uh, we mounted the exhibition there. So whenever they had events, you know, the events were taking place you know, in the space of the of the uh, exhibition. Right. So that was fantastic. And, uh, and and shout out to those guys who I miss working with. And the last place that we exhibited fully uh, in historic Palestine itself was in the African community of the old city of Jerusalem right there adjacent to the Alexa Mosque compound and that was like absolutely amazing um, as well and so we've exhibited there and then I came back it was the 50th anniversary of the Black Panther Party co-founded in Oakland by Huey P. Newton with Bobby Seale in October of 1966. And there was a, a conference commemorating that 50th anniversary at the Oakland Museum. And the entire Oakland Museum complex was um, devoted you know, to this commemoration for three days. And we did uh, a mounting of uh, a section of the exhibition there, which again was an honor. Then uh, there have been two other mountings, uh, one in Vienna, Austria, so then in February of 2018, uh, there was this great project called Under Construction uh, in Ghent, Belgium, uh, with a small collective of really fantastic people. Uh, I was contacted by Omar Salamanca, and I knew something was very special when I got the email because it talked about a festival they were doing called Under Construction. And I knew from my own reading across translation mm -hmm. that the original collection of poetry in which Samuel Qasim's Enemy of the Sun poem appeared was called in Arabic Processions of the Sun. 
And so when these folk in Belgium were working on a project called Processions of the Sun as a part of under construction in Ion Palestine, um, I knew these words like stood out. So it was almost like seeing the, the title of the book on the book list again, like Any of the Sun, where do I know that from? And so when I saw Processions of the Sun in this email, I said, whoa, like how many people like know that from Arabic and English and talk about it? I was like, this is a link, right? And that was the proposal to mount the exhibition in Belgium, which we did in February of 2018, and which was fantastic, and I'm thankful to them as well. That is wonderful. I mean, it's had such an active life in the short years since it was born. After all of these exhibitions, like physical exhibitions, are there any other projects that have emerged from these new scholarly and activist connections that you've been making? Yes. So uh, when I was talking to some friends and colleagues and associates uh, as we were mounting the original exhibition at the Abu Jihad Center, uh, I knew there was interest from ex-captives themselves, right, who weren't necessarily affiliated with the center, um, but were even icons like of the movement, right, were already expressing interest. And some of them came to the opening on October 20th, 2015. Um, but some of those folk whom I was in contact with uh, talked about more folk wanting to come right? And more folk couldn't come, more ex-captives across historic Palestine couldn't come uh, because of the backlash against the resistance, right? So in that particular um, time period, those weeks of October, a lot of ex-prisoners were being rearrested at checkpoints. Uh, and there was a lot of, you know, uh, occupation violence against them at checkpoints and what have you. And so um, there might have been a lot more uh, present at the opening were not for the timing, right, and that regulation, colonial violence, right. But then after the exhibition, I would get word, you know, from the folks who had seen it, who had read about it, uh, some of whom were at the opening, that uh, that they thought it was very interesting, that they thought it was great, and then they would be like, okay, so what's next? And so it was out of this contact and these connections that uh, I developed a research project, right, to make for something next, and that's how I would end up going back. Uh, and staying in the West Bank for three months mm -hmm. uh, to conduct interviews with ex-captives, with ex-prisoners, right, across historic Palestine. And so this is what I struggled to do for three months um, and was able to do, let's say, at least 40 interviews uh, in that time period on both sides of the so-called Green Line. Uh, I was able to make contact, if not do interviews, with some folk in the Golan Heights, uh, as well. Uh, since then, I've been to Lebanon and interviewed some Palestinians in Lebanon, you know, and I wanted to ask them about the, uh, the incredible revolutionary academy that they built inside these, you know, Israeli prisons. Uh, I wanted to ask them about the internationalism of their movements, you know, uh, ideologically, like in particular, I wanted to ask them about their bibliography, you know, so I always ask them, like, did you read Fanon, for example? What did you read? Did you read Fanon? And I wanted to ask questions that uh, I would ask black political prisoners here, uh, and I even asked them a few questions that came from black political prisoners here, um, questions from Daru Ben-Wahad and questions from Kazi Ture, for example. Uh, and so this was that project that I started at the same time that we were looking for opportunities to mount the exhibition in other spaces of Palestine that Palestinians, you know, couldn't get to from other spaces, right, because of the Zionist fragmentation, right, of, of, of their homeland. So, so this is what started there <laughs> in the wake of, uh, of the original mounting of the exhibition, this research project. We'll be sure to follow up with listeners when this project is released in whatever form in the future. Thank you. 
uh, as someone who's been studying these connections and the solidarity uh, across movements or between a larger people in a larger movement, um, historically, if you might want to talk about uh, how activists today are reforging or strengthening the connections between Black and Palestinian uh, liberation movements. Mm-hmm. Well, all of this for me comes out of my own attempts to study and learn, right? Uh, and to resist and defy another kind of fragmentation, which is historical fragmentation, uh, which is to resist and, and defy alienation from my own history and our own self-understanding. So for me, it's all about studying, right? Uh, doing that particular work to reconnect, right, with, uh, with histories of struggle and cross-identification, for example, that the enemy wants to, right, separate us from, okay? Uh, and so that's how all of this happens, like, for me in this particular case. Uh, and so it's very important that it, you know, be profound and have depth right and be informed right a lot of the media attention that comes to like new eras like of activism is just that right it often can be mediatized right whether it is the mainstream corporate american imperial enemy of american imperial media of print right or whether it's corporate social media like Mm -hmm. for example and so like i'm interested in recovering information that is being conspiratorially kept from us in order to promote division and alienation. Uh, I'm interested in recovering that information, right? And therefore problematizing all modes, right, of, of media. And for me, the goal is revolutionary transformation. The goal is not recognition. And so therefore, it's important to understand that when we recover connections, when we renew connections, we're just doing that. We're renewing those connections, right? They're not new. They're not... Uh, uh, rare, like as it turns out, right? Uh, we're recovering, right? Something that is uh, uh, meant to be denied us by the folk that we're struggling against, okay? And so for me, it's about understanding that, oh, the connections that may get mediatized today actually represent longer, a longer history of connections that, that are not only longer historically, but also are more profound, right? Uh, that we realized, right? So if someone wants to focus on some tweets between Gaza and Ferguson, that's great if that's the beginning of a new history of study and recovering, right? That takes us beyond corporate social media, that beyond media politics, beyond recognition politics, right? And beyond sloganeering, then if that takes us into the profundity of the whole history of these kinds of solidarities for revolutionary transformation, right, rather than recognition, then that's a good thing. But if this just becomes sound bites, you know, and uh, MTV era sort of like, you know, media images uh, that go back to the equivalent of being a t-shirt, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. in place of politics, right, solidarity as rhetoric instead of solidarity as praxis, right, then that's not something I'm excited about, but I am excited about jumping deeper into the, the, the profound waters of the longer history of just these sorts of things, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And one of the things that I think is a, that is potent about this particular story of George Jackson and Samuel Qasem is that this was an example of solidarity that was magical and metaphysical, right? No one decided that I was gonna take a Palestinian poem and have it be a black poem in North America for 40 years, right? It happened. 
You know what I'm saying? So it wasn't even a strategy. It was lived. And so this is like, I think what's special like about uh, this particular example, because it wasn't like a solidarity you had to argue. It was, <laughs> it, it was a, it was, it was a lived, right? Like metaphysical, it was an ontological kinship, yeah, you know, there kinship. that made this thing happen. Hmm. Yeah, as you said, you know, George Jackson's mother read this poem and thought it was his, as did so many others. And it was. It was. It was. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Professor Thomas. This has been really a pleasure and an honor. Listeners can find a bibliography as well as some images related to the exhibition George Jackson and the Son of Palestine, as well as Professor Thomas's other work on our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Sönsüz, sönsüz bir dünya Ne olur